Welcome and good morning to Rock Hill. Glad you guys are here today. Uh, I know most of you, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Jim. That was a cool noise. Was that you, Shelby? <laughs> that was a great ring. I like that. I can tell it's Shelby because she's a different color now than she was <laughs> 10 seconds ago. <laughs> I want to get that, so let me know what, which one that is. It was a good one. We are a discipleship community. Uh, we're followers of Jesus who've made, been made alive to Christ. That's who we are. We've come to believe that anchoring and centering and orienting our lives in Jesus is actually the good life, regardless of what. Someone else out there might be claiming what the world or the culture might say. We think it's the good life. So my invitation to you is to join us in that good life in this, whether it's this moment or it's uh, in, your, in your regular, ordinary life. I want to give a quick shout out next Sunday as we call Common Sunday. Every once in a while we kind of expand in some ways in our worship service and, and really make it a time where we're hearing from each other, not just from myself or whoever may be bringing the word, and so we're going to kind of engage um, the topic of suffering next week, and we're going to spend some time praying for each other for healing, and not, not just those of us who might be experiencing some extreme kind of suffering, we certainly want to do that, but we all have cracks and fractures in our souls, right? We all, we all do, and so we're not going to do anything weird, we're just going to pray for each other. Uh, including our Common Sunday. And Alex is going to come next Sunday and talk about, share, you know, some of her journey and, and from God's Word about suffering. And so I encourage you to join us in that. We, we've been engaging an ancient letter called First Peter. First Peter is written to a scattered people spread out of across what is kind of modern-day Turkey. They've largely been displaced. Uh, from their communities, and they were scattered. Peter's addressing them, and he's, he's meeting them where they are in the unique circumstances in which they're living. We're going to kind of come to kind of the sofa, the couch, right in the middle of the, the letter, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. And, and this, this little passage we're going to look at, I'm going to kind of give you the end first. Peter's going to end it with the word amen. Up until that point, you, you didn't realize he was praying all this time. And uh, he actually was. And I think that's a good word for us because if, if we observe carefully many of the prayers in Scripture, they're often that way. It's like, oh, I didn't know he was praying. Uh, he says amen. And I think that's, that in itself is a learning point for us. One of my mentors said prayer is talking to God about what we're doing together. So often like our conversing with each other is also a prayer to God. We can, as we grow in our discipleship of Jesus, we learn to live that way where we're, we're constantly in a mode of talking to God and each other sometimes we don't really remember where we started and when we ended. So this, this passage kind of demonstrates that. So let me read it together. I'm going to ask you to stand. It's only going to be on the screen there. And you, you're welcome just to follow along. Matter of fact, why don't we just read it out loud together? Maybe we can, can do that. And uh, I'll, I'll get us started, and then I'm going to stop and let you take it. How's that? Here we go. The end of all things is near.
And amen. You may be seated. So there's, there's an outlook that, that kind of colors this entire passage, and it's in that very first phrase. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. It's the same word, near, that Jesus uses at the outset of his ministry when he's, he's announcing, if you will, the arrival of his kingdom. He says, the kingdom has come near. Peter's using that same word now to say the end. He's not announcing arrival here. He's announcing something else, the end. He said the end has come near. Just like the kingdom is at hand, so is the end. It's interesting. You know, throughout the church's history, scholars have tried to like categorize God's dealing with men and women in, in eras. And you can read different books and find different eras that they try to like look at human history and say here's here's some of the big kind of epic eras in the history of humanity and they'll start with like creation when God creates and then fall when man turns away men and women turn away from from God and then exodus people uh, being in captivity God's people and even before that God calling a man named Abraham and saying, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going, to, I'm going to birth a people, a kingdom of priests, if you will, that will be my people. From you will come many people who will live by faith in me. After Exodus comes the rise of a nation, a, a political entity, if you will, and a, a, a political entity that begged for a king, so it becomes a, a, a political kingdom, and that kingdom didn't fare very well very long, and so it becomes a divided kingdom, and they, they, they split, and they begin to experience invasion and in captivity to other nations, and there's these era of prophets where they rise up and begin speaking God's both care and judgment in the middle of all this chaotic chaos captivity and idolatry that's going on in the culture sound a little familiar to us and uh, these prophets also began looking ahead and saying a messiah is coming a savior is coming and he will usher in a new era and so he comes and Jesus comes the scripture says in the fullness of time kind of at the mountaintop of this this human God relationship, Jesus comes and we learn of his incarnation as God, his, his teaching, his, his life, how he lived, and of course his death given for us in our place, our brokenness, the result of our fall, each of us collectively, Jesus gives of himself to God as a sacrifice to make us righteous with him to make us in relationship with him to secure our adoption if you will of him and then of course Jesus uh, gives us life through resurrection and then Pentecost the birth of the church and here we are and the 60 or 70 years after the birth of this church is when the New Testament's written it's during this time Peter is writing and during this first like season of the church, the church collectively understood that it was living in the end. 
I mean, they really thought, you know, Christ had talked about he's going to come back and he's going to collect the people who are following him. There's going to be this big judgment, uh, epic judgment experience where humanity is going to be judged before God. And so Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen, he's ascended. And so the church is self-aware that this is getting ready to happen. In fact, so much so, some communities like the one in Thessalonica, Turkey, they quit their jobs and went and lived together kind of in a commune way because they said there's no need working. He's getting ready to come back. And then this crazy thing began to happen. You know what it was? People started croaking. They started dying. They weren't expecting that. They thought Jesus was getting ready to come back for all of them. And it was because of this like traumatic realization that people are dying that the New Testament, there was now motivation to write, to, to preserve the teachings of Jesus, to address different discipleship communities with letters and instruction and inspiration and encouragement. So, the end. The end. It's a little tricky, isn't it, thinking about the end. Of course, we don't know when it's coming. Are we kind of somewhat living in it? Is it going to be captured in a big epic event? Scripture's pretty clear about that. The answer is yes. We don't know when it's coming. Here we are... 2019, and we're looking at God's Word saying the end is near. It's hard to keep perspective on this. May or may not feel near. I mean, different times. I remember 9-11. Some of you were like in diapers at 9-11, or you weren't even, can I say it, born yet at 9-11. But I remember one one of the things that colored that day was this. Some of you can identify with this sense of like, endness to that day. I remember going and picking up my kids from school. It's like, well, if this is it. We're going we're gonna to go together, you know. So I got them out of school and, and there was this, you know, it was new in our culture to really experience that together in that way. And then we moved through that, kind of. Peter writes, the end is near. He also wrote this in his next letter called 2 Peter. Do not forget this one thing, my friends. With the Lord, a day is like, what? Some of you know it. A thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient. Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. See, in God's perspective, in his economy, 2,000 years just ain't that long. To us, we're thinking, really? 2,000 years later? So we don't really know where we are on the time spectrum of the end is near. But let me give you a a prediction that you can be certain about. The end of you is near. The end of you is near. You've got a little while on this earth. And then it's going to be over. Now, if you were born after 9-11, it may not feel that way. And I'm not trying to like 
get all gloomy on you. Uh, I'm just saying, ask anybody after, I don't know, 50. That's the old people around here, if you're over 50. And, and they'll tell you that life is fleeting. That life is fleeting. Even if you, like, are some kind of freak and you get 100 years or if you're a little kid, I just want to tell you, the end is near. We've got a little while on this earth. That reality is also embedded, I think, in Peter's words. The end is near. You don't have that much time. The days may feel long, you know, the time leading up to boards or finals or match day for you pharmacy students, whatever it is. Sometimes those times can feel like forever. Days can feel long. A season can feel long. But I want to tell you, your years are going to fly by. They will. Therefore, Peter's writing. That's what he's saying. The end's near. Therefore, I want to say a few things to you. And we're going to look at these four things. I'm going to run through them. I'm, the, the main thing that I sense God's word for us as a community is going to come at the end. Number four. But the other three are important for us to keep in mind as well. First of all, he says, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So you can pray. So you can talk to me about what you're doing, what we're doing together. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. In, in two Saturdays, we're going to pray together, April 6th. Um, George and Danny will lead us. We're looking in. Some of y'all haven't heard yet. We have a new space that we're getting ready to lease. It's a training space, office space. And I'm hoping they'll let us meet there on April 6th to pray so you can see it. It'll be a mess if we do. It's, we're remodeling it. It doesn't even have a wall on one side right now. So, but we're going to try to pray there if we can. But Peter's saying, be clear-minded. Literally, what he's saying is, keep your head. That's the literal translation. Keep your head about you. Get, gather yourself. Get a hold of your thoughts and your emotions. Keep your head. Maybe we'd use the word compose yourself. Does that work for you? Compose yourself? How do you do that? How do you learn the way of composure? There's an old word we don't use much anymore that I really like, deportment. Be clear-minded. Keep your head. Be sober. Here's a couple of things to work on to like live this out. One is learn the way of perspective. Learn perspective. Perspective is critical. Perspective just means in the moment, you have the ability to see more than the moment. We need to see the moment. We need to live in the moment. But we always need to see more than the moment. Whether the moment we're experiencing right now is really good or it's really hard, or like much of life, it's really mundane. And somewhere in between, perspective says there's more than the moment that I'm living in right now because you can freak out in the moment. Some of y'all know I was a pitcher in baseball. When I, when I went to college, I was really nervous. I was making a transition that some of you have from high school to college. Now, I, I would get really nervous on, on the pitcher's mound. And my, my right fielder friend, Dino, he would, he would run by me when I was pitching. Was he ever inning? His, he was going to his position. He would, he would say something to me because he, he knew I had a trouble gathering myself. I wasn't very good at composure. 
And he would, he would quote some scripture to me. And basically he'd say, keep your head, Jim. There's more than this inning going on. There's more than this moment going on. So perspective is that ability to just say that. You also get perspective if you'll pursue something. It's called wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see your moment and the bigger picture from God's perspective. See, God has a thought about your moment. And He has a thought about your bigger picture. Wisdom is the ability to see it from His perspective. You grow in wisdom in a number of ways. One is you get into His Word. It's full of wise things. In fact, there's a whole section in the Bible we call wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs is kind of the champion of that section. I'd encourage you to spend some time in that book. Read Proverbs. Another way you learn wisdom is you get around wise people. You get around people who've a little further along in their journey and their experience than you. And most of wisdom, hear this, some of it's taught, a lot of it's caught. You, you kind of get it by being around it. Now, sometimes there'll be lessons learned. But a lot, a lot of it's just from being in proximity to wise people. And you'll learn wisdom that way. You'll watch the way they make decisions. You'll watch the way they're living in their moments. And, and maybe you know, their moment looks like a crisis to you. And if they're a wise person, it'll probably feel a little bit less like a crisis to them. Why? Because they, they're seeing it from God's perspective a little bit more. Another way you grow in perspective is develop the reflex of turning your heart and your mind to Christ. Why? Because you lose perspective quickly. So do I. We lose perspective. We get it. We have those moments when we're seen more clearly and then here comes some other crisis. And we've lost it again. So develop the practice, the discipline of, of coming back to God. In his word, in prayer, Paul wrote, set your heart and mind on Christ. He also wrote, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn to think and ask the question, what would Jesus be doing if he were me in this situation? You don't always know the answer, but it's always the right question. Sometimes the answer comes in its own time. Perspective is critical for each of us. The last thing I would say in maintaining perspective is learn how to cast your anxiety on God. We're going to see in another time, Peter writes this in chapter 5. Cast all your cares upon Him. How do you do that? You use your words. And you just say, God, I'm freaking out. I'm really anxious about this situation. Some of you guys are in like really transitional phases right now. That brings its own anxiety some of you are in health crises right now. That brings its own anxiety. You've got something looming coming that you don't know if you have the stuff to make it. To kind of pull that off well, that brings anxiety. We take that anxiety and we, we, we lay it before God. And we say, I'm trusting you with this. As much as we know how to engage our heart and our minds in that. As, as you learn those reflexes of turning to Christ, casting your anxiety upon Him, you know what will happen? Your perspective will deepen. It will grow. You'll learn over time to see life from God's perspective. You'll learn the way of wisdom. 
Number two, Peter wants to say, have unfailing love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That's interesting, isn't it? Love covers a multitude of sins. What's he mean there? He's not saying if we just love hard enough or well enough, then we'll kind of cover each other's sins. We won't need forgiveness from God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying outdo your bad with good. Just, just love real hard and every, everything will be okay. Here's what he's saying. If you're living, and remember he's addressing the people, if your community is living with a vision and an intention and methods to love each other well. If it's really your desire to love each other, and that's kind of the, the compass of your community, then when sin happens, and it does, it won't ruin you. It'll still happen. But you're going to have the spiritual resources, you're going to have the maturity, if you will, to know how to engage the reality of that brokenness, of that sin that happens. Sin does happen. It happens for all of us. If you're not being formed in the way of love, the word he uses here, by the way, is constant love, steady love, ongoing, have unfailing love for one another. If you don't have that, and when sin comes into your life, into the community, it'll, it'll tear us apart. It, it'll, it'll work its way into bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. We all struggle with those things already, right? They're there. But when we're devoted to the way of love, love is kind of like an ointment in there. Uh, And it doesn't make it always just easy. It just makes it possible. That's what love does. Love covers sins. This is true in friendships. This is true in marriage. You know, Cindy and I have been married 35 years and we, you know, sometimes we think, gosh, we're just, I think we're more broken than we were when we got married. Or maybe we just see more of it. But there's another reality going on and it's this commitment to the way of love and the brokenness doesn't prevail because of love. So then Peter's he's not going to like unpack all of this. Like what does love look like in the community? He's going to say two things about it. And that's where we're going to kind of start ending with. First he writes, and I'm doing this in opposite order. Just as each of us has received a gift, serve one another as stewards of the diverse grace of God. Just as each has received a gift. What's he talking about? There's an important clue in the word gift. It's the same word with just two little letters at the end of it as the word grace, ironically. What is grace? Grace is God's kindness to you. It's undeserved kindness. It's kind of the counterpart of mercy. Mercy means you deserve punishment and don't get it. Grace means you get His love, though you don't deserve it. So the word for gift here, the word for grace, by the way, is pronounced in the original, charis. Charis. The word for gift is charisma. It means grace gift. Just as each of you has received a grace gift, 
serve one another. I'll give you a couple definitions of this word, charisma. We often translate them spiritual gifts, and that's a good translation. Grace gift. They are special, I'll give you a little more of a textbook definition. Special abilities given by God to an individual for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. Special abilities given by God to an individual for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've been made alive to God through Jesus, you have been supernaturally endowed with at least one grace gift. Did you know that? Let me say it again. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've been made alive to Christ, I don't mean you just respect His teachings and you think it's cool. I mean you've given your life to Christ. You've been made alive. You've been born again in Him. You have been supernaturally gifted, endowed with at least one of these charismas, gifts. That's the teaching of Scripture. Not just here. It's all throughout the New Testament. Spiritual gifts are empowered by God's Spirit to be used in the ministry of the church. A great theologian, J.I. Packer, said this, Spiritual gifts are actualized, I like that word, actualized powers of expressing, of celebrating, of displaying and communicating Christ in and through the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are given by God. See, here's the deal. You, we, cannot carry out the ministry of the church through our own skill, intellect, creativity, effort. I don't care how smart you are. You cannot carry out God's call in your life out of all this stuff up here. Or out of your creativity. God wants to use those things. But you've got to have His grace in, in it. His grace gift. It's required. Just as this is true for our salvation, coming to Christ, being made alive in Him, it's equally true for our ministry. There has to be a component of God that's in it. That you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. Can you develop it? Uh, yeah, you can, but you didn't just go acquire it. He gives it to us. That's what a spiritual gift. They are, they are God's presence, like a birthday present to us. They're, they're manifestations, if you like that word, of they're indicators of God's presence in His people, in part. Spiritual gifts. In Scripture, there's between 20 and 34 specific gifts listed. Depends on which ones you count and don't count. Now, there, there's pretty good, we have a pretty good suspicion there's probably more spiritual gifts than just the ones listed. That's debatable. You may have your own opinion about that if you've studied it. So what are we supposed to do? If you've been given a gift, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, Peter tells us right here. You see it? Serve one another. Serve one another as stewards, he says. There's an interesting word. Steward. What's a steward? It's not the owner. 
as an administrator, a steward is charged with responsibility to carry something out, to properly manage something that's been entrusted to us. It's like Amanda, our, 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 really the, the, the woman that serves us every Sunday morning. Maybe you've met her. She's here early getting this room ready for us. She, she gets the kids' rooms ready. She makes sure it's clean. If it's not, she takes care of it. She, she makes sure we have the supplies that we need. She's a steward. She's been entrusted with taking care of us. And by the way, she does an incredible job. That's what we're to be. God's entrusted to us. Gifts. We're to be stewards. Peter says our gifts are manifestation of the diverse grace of God. God's up, his grace is like doing a whole lot of stuff in the world. And so he's gifting the church to do his whole lot of stuff in the world. That makes sense? It's really that simple. He's gifting us. So Peter places these gifts, and you know, we don't have time to like dive deep into gifts. By, by the way, we did a whiteboard kind of a seminar on this last fall, last October, called The Gifted Church. Uh, you may have missed it. I think there are about 30 of it. You came. If you'd like us to repeat that, please write that on a card and put it in the box. We'll do it again. I'm glad to, if there's three of you, you can come to my house. We'll do it around my table. Um, we'll, we'd love to do that again. But today, just want to make the point, Peter's like giving us two categories. First, he says, if anyone speaks, he's talking about gifts of the mouth, like hopefully what I'm doing right now. If anyone speaks, he should speak as speaking the very words of God. Whoa. Now are you starting to see gift, what giftedness is? Am I capable of speaking the words of God out of my own intellect and creativity? I hope you don't think that. <laughs> But somewhere in this sloppy thing called men and women speaking and being gifted by God, God's Word speaks. Somewhere in that equation, there's God. Let him who speaks, speak as speaking the words of God. Those who are leading worship, let them lead us in the anointing, in the spirit, in the attitude, in, under the leadership of God's Spirit. Those who lead a Sunday school class for our kids or explorers, whatever we, you know, all those classes that are going on over there. Let them do it under the guidance, under the empowering of God, under the inspiration of God. It's sober, isn't it? It's sober. That somehow, in, in like all of our brokenness and like trying to figure things out, God shows up in the form of a gift and He speaks. Then Peter says, if someone serves, let him do so with the strength God supplies. Did you get that? Peter's saying, I'm not just talking to you people who teach, who use your words as a gift. I'm talking to all who serve. In other words, all who've received a gift. You're equally empowered by God. You're equally equipped by God. You're to be equally inspired and motivated by God. Confession. You know what my favorite time of Sunday morning is? Is about 8.30. I almost always have the opportunity to stop and just watch the setup team. It's my favorite part of the morning. And they're not doing anything different. They're just setting up the screen and plugging in stuff and troubleshooting what's not working that morning, you know, and our instruments are 
or lap, you know, sometimes I forget something, you know. But, but they're working it out. They're, they're not necessarily using their words primarily as the giftedness. They're using their movements. They're using their muscle. And in the kingdom of God, we need a lot more muscle than mouth. We need a lot of movement. A lot of stuff needs to get done, not just said. Some things need to get said, but we need muscle. The world needs a lot more muscle than mouth from the church. So how do we discover our gifts? Because you may be thinking, gosh, I don't know. You know, I don't know what mine is. Am I supposed to know? I mean, is that, does it just kind of happen to me? Well, again, that question deserves a lot more time than we have. Um, let me just give you three quick indicators of a gift. And then if you want more, let's do a whiteboard together and we can talk about it. One is inward conviction. One, one indicator of gift, there's something, there's like something of God going on inside you related to that gift. There's this inward motivation, compulsion, desire to like do something, to use that gift. That's a good thing. If, if you're like, I want to do this, and, I, and I, I don't, I'm not sure, but I think it might be God in me that wants me to do that. That's a good thing. It doesn't necessarily mean you're ready to do it, depending on the gift. If your gift is, doesn't require a high level of spiritual maturity or experience, you just jump in and do it. If it does, then you need to enter training for that, where you get some experiences in different kind of situations and get evaluated and encouraged and helped. But there's this inward thing. There's also usually some sense of satisfaction when you use it. I'm not necessarily saying it's always fun. I'm just, there's just, it's, there's a sense of, it's kind of like the old chariots of fire. You know, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. There's that sense of when I do this, I feel the presence of God in my life. I even sometimes feel His pleasure on me. That could be a sign of a gift. Number two, so number one, inward conviction. Number two, outward confirmation. This is important because gifts aren't discovered in isolation. They're discovered in community. That's really important to know. You can take a gift survey. There's all kinds of them out there if you've been around the church a while. They can be helpful, but they're only helpful if you're using your gift. Most of us answer questions by how we want to be, not necessarily how we really are, or how others see us. So the simple truth is, most of us don't self-diagnose very well. We just don't. Now as we get older, we get better at it. But most of us don't. Few of us do. Some of us just kind of have a knack. But we all need the witness of community when it comes to giftedness. You need the affirmation of other people, including those who are further along. Peers too, but those who are further along, saying, I see that in you. When you do that thing, that service or that hospitality, whatever it is you do, it seems like it's kind of filled with God when you do that. That could be an indicator that's a spiritual gift in your life. Giftedness is evidence by its fruit, by its effect. So let me tell you something. If you think you have a gift and no one else is seeing it, I would check that. I would, I would be curious about it. It doesn't mean you don't. It just means you ought to really explore that. Because it may be you want that gift. Go ahead and ask God for it if you do. It's okay. It's to get their gifts, right? You can ask God for gifts. 
but you got to have community to know if you have it or not. That's really, really important. So the evidence is it's fruit. So the question is, are others encouraged? Are they helped? Are they spurred on? Are they challenged? Are they equipped when you're using your gift? That's a way we know. That's how we should measure. And then finally, upward commitment. So Peter writes, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and might forever. So here's a key question. Is your gift bringing glory to Christ or is it drawing attention to you? That's an important question too. Is the purpose of our gift to draw attention to us or is it to make much of God? And hey, let's be honest. We all struggle with that. So it's okay to struggle with it. You know, especially if your gift is on the stage. You know, everybody's going to look at you. You are the center of attention for that moment. So you real, that's one reason why James writes, not many of you should do that. Because it takes a lot of formation to not make it, make it a platform for pride and self-centeredness. There's a lot of formation that has to go on for that. So you don't want that if that's what you're doing with it. It's not a good place to find yourself. Let me wrap this part up. You've been given a gift by God. He intends you to use it in the ministry of the church. So learn how to use it. I don't know what to do with this, Jim. Let me give you two quick suggestions. Start by looking for little ways to serve. If you don't know what to do, if you're new, or maybe you're not new, but you've just not really looked into this, look for little ways to serve. Say yes to something you think, that is not my gift, I'm not good at that, I don't want to set up or tear down or help with kids. Start by something small in your eyes. You you know what? You'll really learn from that. When I was in seminary, I started like teaching by teaching three-year-olds, and then I did it for years. And one one thing I learned, three-year-olds theology is really sophisticated. They're asking questions that the rest of us are afraid to ask. Well, it was a great way to get trained in teaching. With those three, I learned a lot from them. I also learned how to pastor people from one of them, Drew Morgan. He'd come in every morning. Hello, Jim, how was your day today? How are you doing today? And like, he had so much pastoral care just oozing out of him. And I was like, hmm, that's a good question to ask. I think I'll write that down. You'll be surprised if you just throw yourself in and serve. You'll be surprised what God might form in you. So if you don't know where to start, start small. You certainly don't want to start on the stage. Also, look for ways to use, your, use a gift to bless people. Go out of your way to find ways to bless people, not draw attention to yourself. So Jesus gives this teaching in Luke. He says, he who's faithful with little is the kind of person who will be faithful with a lot. Do you hear that? He's not giving you a formula. He's not saying, if you'll be faithful with little, he'll give you a whole bunch. He's saying, no, you know what? The kind of person who's faithful with a whole bunch is exactly the same kind of person who's faithful with a little. So learn to be faithful with a little. And then when God's ready to give you more, he will, if that's good for you. And then he goes on to say, if you're faithful at that which belongs to somebody else, guess what? You'll also be the kind of person that will be faithful 
what God entrusts to you. It's the same thing. So find a leader, someone who's in a role, and go try to make them successful. Try that. Ask them, what would, what would help make you successful? Be faithful in their work, in their ministry, and guess what? As you're faithful to that, you'll learn the way. The guy won't wave a magic wand and say, now I'm giving your own stuff. No, you learn the way of faithfulness in other people's ministry. And you know what? God will start giving you people who are learning the way of faithfulness who serve you. Well, it's a beautiful thing when that happens. So, so look for ways to be a blessing to people. It'll matter a lot. Spiritual gifts are important of element in mystery, of ministry in the church. They're not the focal point. They're not. Love is. Unity is. But gifts are important. Okay, last point. All right, everybody take a breath. Because this, what I'm going to share the next seven minutes or whatever, is, is really the part that God has spoken most clearly to me about this week for us, as I can understand it. So if you're like starting to nod off, go stand in the back or whatever, because I really want us to get this. This is, yeah, sorry, I'm doing this last, but like, whatever you got to do, do it. Peter says, be hot, and I'm going to start like shouting now, so you know, I'll do my part to, to help. <clears throat> he says, be hospitable to one another. Did you know that hospitality was one of the most critical elements of the well-being of the ministry, and I will say this, the survival of the ancient church. Hospitality. I didn't know that. I came to know it more as I prepared for this. You know, I'll just confess to you, when I hear the word hospitality, what do you think of when you hear the word hospitality? What I, what I immediately go to is like having someone over for dinner. You know, and like bringing out real plates instead of paper ones and turning the TV off. You know, maybe you think of like uh, that movie Beauty and the Beast, you know, where the forks and the knives and the spoons start dancing, you know, and they, they're singing Be Our Guest. That's like the picture that I have in my mind when I hear hospitality. And that's pretty fun. I mean, I, I would like to have some dancing forks in my house. I think that would be awesome. But that's not really what Peter's doing here. Did you know we get the same word hospital as we do from hospitality? It's the same word. The hospitality that Peter's talking about has a place for the dancing spoons, so don't throw them out. But it was much more critical than that. It was meeting real needs of needy people in the community. Housing, medical care, <clears throat> shelter, rest, nourishment. These people that Peter is addressing are with people who've been displaced. Sometimes due to social isolation. Sometimes due to political persecution. Sometimes they were Peter and his comrades like Paul and Andrew who were traveling itinerant evangelists and teachers. Most of the time, they were just regular folks who were struggling, who needed those things. Housing, medical care, shelter, rest, nourishment. 
Peter is admonishing the community to take care of them. That's why he's saying offer hospitality about, without grumbling. Because sometimes it was hard to do this. Hospitality is a critical need that the church is being asked to meet. Real needs surround us. We, we know this already. We know we're surrounded by need. In our short community of Rock Hill, our five plus years, we've had the privilege of exercising hospitality. People have needed housing. The first six weeks, Cindy and I lived here. We lived with Dave and Rachel Clawson. We didn't have a place yet. We lived with them. It was great. There have been others. We may have others right now who have a housing need. People have needed food. You have shared, many of you have shared food over and over and over again. People have needed financial help. Many of you shared sacrificially, financially for people. Many of you have just needed time. They've needed encouragement. They've needed instruction. They've, they, they've needed courage. And you've sacrificially given of your time to people. That's been a demonstration of hospitality for you. You didn't know that's what it was, but you did it. Some of you, a few of you, have, have kind of gone really sacrificial with hospitality. You've, you've taken in children who have been displaced whose parents have either abandoned them or are just not able. And, you, and this isn't like a Saturday night thing for you. This is 24-7. You've made your home theirs. I could go on. The word hospitality, you know what it means? Love of the foreigner. Same word as Hospital. I don't know what it is, but God has something for us right here, gang. There are needs and opportunities emerging. My job is not like to figure out all the hospitality needs. I'm going to share a few with you right now. We're going to pray for one in a minute. But it is my job, at least today, to call this out of us. Whatever that means for us, for you. I'm going to give you some examples. I'm not doing this saying everybody should do each one of these. I'm just saying here's some examples. There are people in Nebraska and Iowa right now, as you know, suffering. Eric, where's your hand, Eric? Where are you? Eric wants to, and Whitney want to take a group of people to some, one of those places. Iowa and Nebraska are still figuring it out. We got an email saying help. So next Saturday and Sunday, if you want to go to Iowa and Nebraska, raise your hand again just so they know where you're at. See, Eric. That's Whitney. She can help you too, his wife right there. If you want to do that, express hospitality. I don't know if she can go or not, she may, but anyway, Eric's going. If, 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 if some of you go with him, he's going. He may go by himself. I don't know, but see him. They'll leave Saturday morning, come back Sunday night. You can miss church. It's okay. We, we have a neighborhood on our heart called North Lawrence. It's not all we're doing, but we're really trying to bless that part of our City, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt. It's on your little business card up there. We encourage you, invite people to that. Let, let's love that. Let's do all we can to love that community as God gives us opportunity. We have a sports camp there this summer. We, we've already reached families there. We want to continue to do that. We're doing free oil change thing in the fall. We want to keep doing that. Those are opportunities for hospitality. There'll be others. 
I believe there's emerging opportunities in our community. Why do I believe this? Just because of the chatter I hear to serve displaced children, uh, foster care, adoption. I'm not, this isn't for everybody. We don't want it to be for everybody. You need to feel called to that. That's kind of a 24-7 thing. I met, I met a man the other day. He leads an organization called Foster Cause. They're, they're, this organization's brand new. It's been around a year, but they really have a vision to help the church do a good job, not just try to get as many people as we can doing it. But let's do it in a way where we don't burn ourselves out. Let's do it in a way where, where these kids become our kids, not just this family's kids. That's what we want. William, I'm going to bring William up here in a minute. William, just not, I didn't ask him to talk. We're just going to pray for his brother. William uh, is from Rwanda, and he, as when he was a child, they had to flee because of political uh, persecution. It was awful, and so they grew, he grew up in another country, and, and he's an amazing person, and, and uh, one of the smartest guys I know, and I could go on, but like William's brother uh, is, has needs. He's, he's in, gone to school in Cyprus. He's in college, uh, and some of the things that the school told him he would have, he doesn't, so he didn't have money to eat, just to be quite frankly with, frank with you, and so we want to pray for him. You know, and we want to say, God, you know, what we're going to do in our prayer in just a minute is like, God, we, we don't know. You know, he's in Cyprus. We're here. We, we don't know if we're supposed to try to bring him here. But we, we are going to do this. We're going to say, God, we're going to pray for Joel. And however you want us to be the solution, if you do, then our yes is right here. You know, Cindy and I were talking about it the night before last, and we said, we've got to start with us. It's like, God, if you want us to house Joel, then yes. God may ask someone else. He hasn't told us that yet, but the answer is yes. That's what hospitality does. It says, God, I'm not sure what the questions are yet, but I know what the answer is. That's the way of the disciple of Jesus. It's yes. You will grace gift me to do it. Whatever it is you call me to do. i say a couple other things, then we'll pray for Joel. It's not all big stuff like this. Don't throw the dancing forks and spoons away. Sharing food. Bringing a student into your home for, an, for a meal can be very life-giving to them. Use food. Food does something for people. Next, next week, bring pastries next week. The Devil Tree doesn't care if we do it every once in a while. Those of y'all who want to do it, Make something and bring it next Sunday morning. It's common Sunday. We'll ask for permission, or for forgiveness, not permission. They're fine. They, we've done it before. We're going to start having hello breakfast every couple months for new people to learn more about us. That's a way you can practice hospitality. Bring food to our hello breakfast. We'll, you'll see it on the calendar. We have a Christmas parade project in December. Uh, that we've helped with. We told them after this year, next year we want to feed breakfast to all the cowboys because, you know, it's a horse thing, right? It's a way to practice hospitality. To practice hospitality to each other is to practice the presence of Christ. I want you to hear these words from the great 5th century preacher John Chrysostom. He said, If you receive your neighbor as though he were Christ, you will not complain or feel embarrassed but rather rejoice in your service. But if you will not receive Him as Christ, 
you will not receive Christ either. Because he said, whoever receives you receives me. And he says, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. This is God's word for us today. May God grow our ministry of hospitality. It's scary to move on past dancing forks and spoons. Now let's keep dancing those forks and spoons. But to reach into people who are hurting, who need what we may feel like we don't always have, that's what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to be overwhelmed. And we're supposed to find our sufficiency in Him. Not by how much we have in our bank account, and not how much you have in your bank account, and how smart you are, how gifted you are, or you think you are. He supplies it. This is what it means to be a community. What it means to be church. So let's camp out for just a couple minutes on one tangible need, and that's Joel. We, I, I just want William to come up. I told him I wanted to make him talk. I just wanted you to see him. Because I want us to pray together. Um, Joel is a follower of Christ, William's brother. And uh, William says he's smarter than he is, which I can't imagine, but that's what he tells me. And, um, but we, we, we wanna, I want to specifically pray that God would help Joel. That, that's, that's the biggest part of our prayer, because this isn't about us. It's not about what we do for Joel. But then let's also lay our yes before him. Can we do that together? And so we're praying for Joel, but we're really praying for our yes whatever God asks us to do. Does that make sense? Let's do it. Let's pray. God, we want to lift up a young man, 23 years old, living in Cyprus that we've never met, except William. He matters to you. And so we want his plight, God, if you would, to become ours. And I pray that you would you would put him on our hearts to pray. We start there, God. But Lord, we don't know if that's all you're called us to do. We want to just place our yes on the table with this. And we pray that you would meet him in his need. If we need to give money, if we need to buy him a plane ticket, if we need to house him here or somewhere else, then God, yes. As much as we know how to say yes, we say yes. We, we need wisdom and knowing how to do it well in a way that really helps. We always will need that, but we do say yes. And Father, we, we pray as we live in a, a broken world. God, we got enough of our own brokenness. Sometimes we feel like, how can I worry about those folks? I'm jacked up enough myself. Well, that's the way you do it. You use jacked up people infused with your grace to help other jacked up people. So God, as your people, we come to say yes. Make us a hospitable people. Make us a hospital for people who are hurting. Would you guide us in the days ahead? We don't know what this looks like. We take our hands off the, the need we might feel to control it. We may need to manage it, but we don't have to control it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, William.